I was talking to a dude on Twitter, like briefly, who actually had the decency to tell me he didn't see it working out and not just ghost me. Um, and for that reason, I think he totally rules. But one of the things that um, happened was I mentioned I was playing Doom Eternal and his, I guess, friends all got like really excited. and i was like oh damn do i need to like flex on him and tell him that i've beaten bloodborne and he was like no they'll definitely steal you then i'm like okay cool wow (laughs) (laughs) like i thought he was like really into me he fucking also bailed so i'm just like this is great i love dating on the internet and being fucking lonely because it's the apocalypse I love how many of our episodes since COVID happened start with talking about Tinder or video games, or in this case, both. Uh, yeah. Or just something on the internet. Before we started recording here, we've got Shanya Chowdhury back in the house with us. Sean, it's been a while. We're so glad to have you again. Uh, before we started recording, we were just talking Madden with Shanya. <laughs> like, we can't help it. It's it's fascinating. You know, at one time we might have been like, we don't want to hear about your internet Madden league. But now we're like, <laughs> now we're like, it's COVID. It's like that's the coolest thing I've heard in weeks. Keep going, please. Like, <laughs> is that is yeah. that been feeling a little cooped yeah. up inside? Yeah, I mean, like honestly, it's just better to be playing video games than be outside right now. So <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's just—I don't know—it's—it's it's a good way, just because of, you know, so many gamers out there. And I think it's just a good way to to bond uh, while we're inside. So, man, I've been playing so many video games late at night. It's been keeping me sane, at least. <laughs> Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, like I said, we're so glad to have you back. If you're just tuning in, you're not sure exactly who we are. This is Not Safe for Wonks, of course. I'm Kennedy. We've also got Brandon and Rachel here today, co-hosting. And we have, as I mentioned, Shanya Chowdhury. You came on the show like ages ago. It has been a while. We are so glad to have you back. Shanya is a candidate for U.S. Congress, New York's 5th District, like the queens area kind of and um yeah we had a total blast having you on before and it's been like four months so i'm sure you have a lot to tell us yeah it's been so long that his opponent endorsed bloomberg bloomberg was in the race got endorsed got out <laughs> man yeah I, I was just thinking i was just thinking did we do the last episode before that happened yeah, we, happened? we wanted to talk to you after the bloomberg thing broke out but i think we were just all busy it just didn't quite happen but okay. yeah, what a what a disaster that whole thing was. <laughs> How did you feel when that news came out that that Meeks had just been like, yeah, Bloomberg? You know, I just felt like he handed us a lane, definitely a good opportunity to to maximize on on a silver platter. Because you know, with any grassroots campaign, we're always the underdogs, and you know, we don't necessarily have the resources, the money, the people power to really take on the machine and. You know, there's just, I was glad to see that there was so much universal hate for Bloomberg and that we're putting it on people who endorsed him. And, you know, we're seeing Meeks as one of those early endorsers and not only his endorser, but a co-chair for Bloomberg's campaign. And he was really unapologetic about it, regardless of Bloomberg's history and past. So, you know what? We just felt like we really need to take this opportunity to really expose, you know, the true tragedies of what Bloomberg has done under his term. And that supporting Bloomberg for his candidacy is really neglecting the generations of harm done to people who are marginalized because of Bloomberg's policies. Uh, So, you know, by supporting Bloomberg, you're completely just ignoring everything that's happened to working families, especially here in New York 5. Uh, you know, we we were 
the epicenter for stop and frisk. And also, you know, as Muslims too, Bloomberg was so huge on Muslim surveillance. You know, we have a, lot, a huge Muslim population here. So, you know, that endorsement from Bloomberg did hurt a lot of people. Um, there were plenty of folks, even on social media, um, you know, throughout the country really took it personally. So uh, it really, um, really helped us at least. I really think so. It seems like Bloomberg entering the race in many ways was like a layup for a lot of progressive candidates. But I think being in New York, especially like you were really poised to sort of use that as a separation point between you and your opponent. Like if, if anyone needs convincing that you're not the same, this is it right here. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's been our our, uh, our pretty much our campaign slogan has been like now you know now there are two different types of Democrats you know now all Democrats are the same and we're we're seeing that's the case how Meeks is continuously you know been in the office for twenty years the corporate sellout not really for the working people and um we're not that you know we're trying to bring everyday people we're trying to bring new people into the democratic process and we're doing it our way. You know, I think that's been the most fantastic way about this race so far is that uh, we're not playing by anybody else's rules. We're doing it without consultants. We're doing it without outsiders. We're doing this campaign with just everyday people. Like, this is being run and operated by college students, believe it or not, by college students. And it's because I believe that, you know what, we need younger people to really take the reins to this because every decision we're making today is going to affect them tomorrow. So why not give them the opportunity to, you know, to get ahead of it right now and be the leaders in policy changing. So our team is, is very creative. We're being operated by college students, but they're so young, but also really, really intelligent. So we're, we're doing it our way and I'm just proud of how far we've come. Yeah, I feel like part of the weird sort of extended adolescence aspect of college is that it has caused a lot of people to radically underestimate what early age 20-somethings mm-hmm. are capable of, you know? Yeah. Like, just because we have essentially created this weird servant class that is, like, paying our academic overlords to do research for them, like, they're fully capable cognitively of, like, coming up with really impressive plans at large scope yeah absolutely i agree with you 100 percent. like I'm, I'm i'm sure you guys could agree like i remember when we were younger you know fresh young in college and everything like i felt like we were always underestimated just because of, of our youth but even if we look at the adults you know even if we look at the adults who run this country right now or you know you have adults who are protesting say capitals with you know with rifles it's, it just goes to show it doesn't, it doesn't matter about your age. It's really about your experience, your working, your working experience, but also your lived experiences. Um, and that we're humans, no matter, regardless of age, we're always going to make mistakes. There's always room for growth to learn and we just get better at it. So I don't think age is a factor. It's just uh, something we're trying to really, you know, just really downplay. It's not a huge thing at all. So do you want to give us just like a little update on like how the campaign has come along so far? We know you're getting close to the primary. How, how do you feel? I mean, this was like a very small campaign when we talked to you initially. You were just getting off the ground. Where are you at now? Yeah. Oh, man. It's definitely taken a, a nice 180. We have hundreds of volunteers. We're about to raise $100,000. So we're getting close to our goal. And we our team is just like on it. We have, you know, folks doing everything. They have a team under them. So everyone's doing what they need to be doing. So we're feeling good, you know. And I think that even with what's going on with COVID-19, obviously there is some obstacles to it because of here in New York, we got to, there's no, you know, we we have to request a ballot. So we request absentee ballot. And a lot of folks still don't know how to use, uh, do that still. So we're trying to uh, do as much as, outreach as we can and you know make sure that everyone is able to request an apathy ballot so we're doing that right, that's really um, important 
yeah, really, really important. And we're feeling good, you know, to be honest, heading in. Everything is really set into place. And, you know, we're, we're feeling like it's, it's in our favor. And, and we're doing everything we can to win this. And I think that we're really going to shock um, a lot of people. So I'm happy. Um, we talked a little bit about how Gregory Meeks endorsing Bloomberg shocked a lot of people and maybe changed a lot of minds. How has he been doing on the response to the virus? Uh, are you are you proud of that? Has he been straight up or has there, has there been shady activities? Uh, Popular bit of both. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was proud of him. I think the um, response from the federal government has been one lackluster, um, especially. And if you look at New York, New York as a whole, when you look at the map of, of the state and where the virus has hit, it's hit communities of color the hardest, especially here in New York 5. The Rockaways, actually, uh, a neighborhood in New York 5 has the highest rates of deaths in the city, the highest rates of deaths in the city. And it w- really, it took weeks it took weeks for any kind of response from the state government from the federal government um even from my own congress member to actually try to provide some kind of relief for for our hospitals we have three hospitals here in the district uh we have eight public housing units uh most of the folks who actually contracted the virus and died live in public housing i also live in public housing so the response has been a little bit too late on top of what meeks has done he even he didn't vote in support of a bill um this was like the early stages of the cares act actually um i think this was the second version actually where he didn't support you know hazard pay and, and ppe for essential workers so he yeah he he was against it so i think the response has just been it's just been terrible to be honest and you know i just feel like people are already affected by this it's already too late to even turn things back you know and i think that going back to normal is not going to work either because it's going to take a long time for folks to just really assimilate back to regular life um and and, you know it's it's definitely changed the lives of the people here forever so and i think right now because of the situation we've actually offered meeks to, to debate us today so we're waiting to hear back from his office to see if he would debate us. There's just a lot of questions that need to be answered. You know, we've seen so many small businesses closed down. We've seen families being displaced because they can't afford to pay their rent. Folks can't get health care, uh, you know, actually health care because they don't have insurance. So a lot of folks have, have questions and people are asking where the Congress member has been. So he's spending more time on Facebook Live right now than he is on the ground helping families, uh, you know, with the little stuff. Do you think there's any chance that Gregory Meeks actually agrees to this debate? To be honest, no. <laughs> I don't think he will right now, but I think that with enough with enough pressure, he will. Yeah, and that's the game plan because the truth is that they don't the establishment will never want to they never want to debate with anyone just because once they do, it leaves uh, room for them to be exposed, exposed to the truth. Right. Uh, you know, and it'll expose how fragile capitalism is at the end of the day, right? And I, and I think that that's really important thing to take away from is that the more we keep attacking, uh, the more layers we're, we're able to peel off. So, you know, and, you know, it's Macklin Lex birthday today, right? So, you know, in, in, in his words, you know, you show me a capitalist, I'll show you bloodsucker. And, you know, capitalism are bloodsuckers, right? So I, I think um, yeah. that once we do get him into position to want to debate us, it's, you know, it's game time. So we're going to keep going at it until he does say yes. I think that's great. I have frequently heard criticism from the right that socialists have used this coronavirus crisis as an opportunity to stress and implement policies uh, that they've just wanted all along. What are your thoughts on that? Do you feel like you're taking advantage of an opportunity by advocating for these policies? 
I feel like uh, we're doing our jobs. <laughs> They're acting like these are policies that are, are new. Uh, we've been fighting for things like Medicare for all, universal basic income, universal sa- paid sick leave, raising the minimum wage at $15 an hour. We've been doing this for a very, very long time before COVID-19. And I think with COVID-19, and this is not the first time we've seen it, even with the financial crisis, we've seen it with the Great Depression, that time and time again, that this economy in this country is very fragile. And once it does fall, the people who are hurt the most are working and poor people. The only people who are not unemployed right now are your billionaires like Jeff Bezos. Like he's set to become a trillionaire. That is just ridiculous that how that could happen. And anyone who really supports the idea of having billionaires and trillionaires, uh, I don't think people really understand that this comes at the expense of, of working people. It comes at the expense of exploiting workers. So we've been fighting for these policies for a very, very, very long time. And Democrats, even right now, you know, we have the House being led by Nancy Pelosi. You know, it's not like the establishment Democrats are, are fighting for these just policies. They are doing everything they can to undermine progressive policies to cater to uh, the Republicans. So that's where I, that's the way I see it. Like in Queens, there's a lot of people that when you talk to them about these issues, they're like, yeah, but if the system keeps rolling like this and I work real hard, I could become a trillionaire one day. Uh, <laughs> really working towards that or, or not so much. You know, I think... No one really says, and I, you know, I think everyone wants to be rich. You know, I, I think that there are a lot of people who have that idea that, you know, when we really idealize billionaires and all these rich folks, you know, celebrities, when we idolize them, you know, where it's kind of like a fantasy because the chances of any of us becoming millions and billionaires are, are slim, you know, and don't get me wrong. I want to see people be well off, be happy, be financially stable, but it shouldn't come at the expense of other, other people. And I think that we really need to change. And it's a deeper conversation to have. We really need to have a, a conversation about how we change our, our mindset about accumulating wealth, you know, and what that means. So... Yeah, you know, I think that a lot, there are, I've gotten the arguments, uh, even some close acquaintances about, about this. You know, they still have this idea that trickle-down economics um, is the way to go, <laughs> you know, and they believe that, you know, someone accumulates wealth, it's their wealth, and they shouldn't have to share it. But what they don't understand is that, again, it's always coming back at the expense of labor and people who supply that labor. I just want to say, you know, we spent nine years doing some kind of nonsense in Iraq, causing all kinds of problems. And that government is only worth like $200 billion. So like, (laughs) like the scale of wealth that's being extracted, it's beyond, this is bigger than, than the amount of money that we've gone to like international warfare over. It's insane to think that one person has been allowed to extract that much wealth. And the thing is, is that the most like sort of freaky part about it is that four years ago, his wealth was $2.6 billion. This has become like an exponential increase that is sucking away anyone else's ability to like have anything. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, they don't care about us. That's the thing. Billionaires do not care about your everyday working person. They only care about what kind of profit we could bring them. So, you know, this, this fantasy an idolization of want to be like billionaires is just it's just sickening. Yeah, absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about one of the programs 
that has arisen in New York during coronavirus that is maybe one of the most positive things. We had a, a guest on the show who's a writer, John Leavitt, and we talked a lot about, he's in New York, and we talked a lot about New York's free food program that started uh, in response to coronavirus. Uh, I wondered if you've been following that program and what you kind of think of it, uh, and if you have any hopes to maybe like keep a version of that program moving forward. Um, to be honest, no, I haven't really heard about the program. Uh, I was definitely aware about how the city was supplying free food at our you know, local public schools. Um, but even with that, I think that I think we really need to meet people where they are instead of having to meet us where we are. If folks are privileged enough to go out there and help out people who are in need, I think something that our campaign has been doing is, you know, providing free groceries, but also delivering it to them. So they don't have to worry about coming outside, being exposed to the virus and the toxic air that we have. So we make sure that families who do need stuff are, you know, their requests are being made. And I think um, that's another conversation to have is also, I guess, universal school meals. It's something that actually I support is ensuring that every child in in public schools has a free meal. Breakfast and lunch should be provided because, you know, children are, are going to schools hungry. Most of, a lot of them are going to school hungry. And I don't think that they should be in an environment where they're going to a place to learn and that they're doing it with an empty stomach. So um, that's what I like, would like to see um, be expanded on. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think it's really criminal when like kids are in trouble and have like lunch debt. And that's just like very sickening that like, you know, this, this system is supposed to be working for all of us, including them, the kids like they, this, like the school system should be like working for them on some level. And it's just like abusing them instead. I mean, yeah, I mean, again, in, these are public school systems, right? Like we're paying our taxes to them. So why not? You know, there should be no question about providing free meals to students. We're already, we're already paying for it. Um, and I don't think that we should be taxing any more money on poor families who really can't afford lunch money. And we also need to make sure that it's, you know, it's quality meals too. Another thing that the, the Blasio, you know, mayor of New York City has been doing a terrible job at is that during Ramadan, they've been sending out um, Ramadan meals to Muslim families who are fasting right now. And the, the, the meals that have been coming in, they're like, uh, you know, you know, like the astronaut food, like, you know, MREs, right? Meals ready to eat, you know, the food that oh, folks are eat. Yeah, it looks exactly like that. And uh, it, it's definitely not appetizing. And I think that's another thing that we got to also do is ensure that the meals that we're providing are quality food that people can eat you know there has to be some love and effort to be put into it because you know i don't know about you guys but you know when i cook i make sure i put so much love into the food that i make when you know and i feel like anyone who really takes the time to making sure that they are giving out nice meals to people to make them feel good and you know content and full stomach that it's made in a way where it's appetizing uh so I also want to chime in and say, like, it is a lot easier than people might think to get started on these kinds of projects. You know, right now uh, in Atlanta, Metro Atlanta DSA is putting together like an agricultural program where we are creating community gardens yeah. that people can just get food from. And like, it's basically as hard as just getting started. There's probably already somebody out in the community doing whatever kind of work you want to do. And you just find them and ask how they got started and they will certainly help you. Yeah, I, love, I actually love that you brought that up, Rachel. Uh, I'm a member of the South Jamaica Resident Green Committee here in my public housing unit. Uh, we actually just created our community garden last summer. So we've been, you know, we have a garden 
everyone is able to plot their own fruits and vegetables and all our and all our neighbors they get it for free and anyone can come and get fresh produce for free and you know we're trying to really establish that in in working class communities like mine make because there's a lot of food deserts too you'll find that in a lot of poor communities that there are food deserts you know getting access to quality uh, nutrition is hard um and does take a toll on their health you know and we will hear this a lot from the right wing talk boys and even of bloomberg remember when bloomberg was like taxing poor people with the soda tax you know this happens because poor people don't have access to quality nutrition because of how expensive it is or how far it is to get to a trader joe's <laughs> you know like it's it, it is difficult so w- when we see that and uh, when we see the the health outcomes you know black and brown people being at the highest rates of cardiovascular diseases uh, you know diabetes cholesterol you name it there's a direct correlation of to how we are able to access to nutrition so yeah you know building community gardens i i think that's a great thing to do and we we definitely need to make sure that's implemented make sure that we support our small farmers as well local farmers making sure that they're not being monopolized you know by big uh, the big farming industry that we have so absolutely um you know you talked about how re- it's really important to put love and affection into the meals that you eat now personally i mean we disagree i am not into that i really i really believe in punishing myself when i eat uh, it's why i go to arby's it's right there near the house and i just stop in there and i just do it you mentioned earlier that it is malcolm x's birthday it's a lot of people had birthdays today it's like a may 19th is a, a big day can you talk a little bit about how you discovered malcolm x and what misconceptions people might have uh, about him and his legacy yeah, you know, Malcolm X is actually one of my biggest heroes. I remember discovering him when I was a really young kid actually. I was probably like in the 4th or 5th grade just because these are things like my dad would talk about Malcolm X uh, because, you know, I come from a Muslim family. So he, he talks about Malcolm X's ideology. My father's also a socialist. I think I mentioned that last episode. So I discovered him as a young, you know, as a young child. And the more I learned about his legacy and his history and the vision that he had, you know, for everyone, I, I think that is ever more relevant now. And, and I think that the misconception that a lot of people may have about Malcolm is that, you know, that he was always like, that he was a racist. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of white people today who think he like Malcolm X was a racist when he wasn't a racist, you know? He was, if he really learned about um, the struggle that he went through, you know, having been, you know, been traumatized while being in jail and then, you know, finding Islam. And then he is someone who wasn't afraid to really go against people in his own circle because on just standing up for, you know, what was right and, you know, standing up for his beliefs. And I think that that is a true testament to what we need in leaders today is, you know, we don't need folks to be afraid to stand up against those who are in the same circles as them. Um, And, you know, it came at the expense of his life, but he wasn't afraid to do it. And that he's someone at the latter part of his years, I think a lot of folks uh, still don't realize that, you know, him and and him and uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had had a rift early on. But Malcolm, um, you know, after he came back from pilgrimage, he came back and he realized how no matter the color of your skin, that we're all fighting against the same oppressive system. Um, And that's the one thing I took away from him. And building a coalition out here uh, in working class communities is that regardless of what you look like, what you believe in, um, if we have these shared experiences, lived experiences, it's because we're fighting the same system. And I carry that with me everywhere we go. So Malcolm is, again, one of my biggest heroes. And, you know, I'm glad that, uh, he was able to be a part of this, you know, part of this world that we live in and able to leave legacy that uh, I was able to learn from. Um, what hurdles did you feel like you faced along the way 
uh, just cultural hurdles uh, in the district? Was it easy? Was it hard? Was it something in between? Just in terms of running for office, were there people who were took more time to warm up to you or was it copacetic? Oh, man. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think it's probably a mix of all that. You know, early on, I think there were definitely a lot of folks who were really supportive just because, you know, they knew who I was as, as a person, um, as a friend, they knew who I was. And then there were, you know, there are folks who, again, you know, there are folks who have their doubts, you know, just because, you know, we don't have a lot of regular people running for office. And I, and I think that that creates a lot of a classist system within a, in our progressive leftist circle sometimes that, you know, in order for someone to run for office, you need to have an experience in such and such. And don't get me wrong, you know, having some experience is good, but, you know, we don't need everyone to be a lawyer. You don't need everyone to be, you know, a teacher. You don't need everyone to have some kind of government experience to, to run for office. You don't, you know, and, and I think that that's part of the reason why a lot of working people, regular people in general, are sort of disaffected with politics is because it doesn't really speak to them. It doesn't speak to lived experiences. And I'm trying to break those barriers. I feel like I've been doing that, and it's taken time. You know, in the beginning, we really didn't have a lot of supporters uh, just because, there, again, there were doubts to our viability. You know, there was doubts. People were afraid about supporting a campaign where, uh, you know, we were taking on a 20-year incumbent who represents a majority-minority district where 50% of the population is African-American. And um, he himself is African-American male. The other 50% of the population is a mixture of Latinos and South Asians. Um, so there was, you know, from the outside, people were making it a, making this a cultural war when that's something I wasn't really trying to do. Even though I am South Asian, I do come from a Bangladeshi background, I never really spoke just for one group of people. My messaging has always been about fighting for the rights of everybody. And I think that a lot of people are not used to that. You know, I think especially to new voters, a lot of people who are pessimistic with the, the current system are not used to seeing regular folks running for office, not taking any corporate PAC money, you know, and just really speaking the truth in front of their faces and then doing it in a way where it speaks to their lived experiences without needing to weaponize um, anyone's identity. I think that when you really speak to someone's experiences through your messaging, um, it will resonate with them. And it does take time because people do need time to trust you, you know, and it's definitely, we see that and I've, I've always understood that. Coming where I come from, trust is really, really fragile. It's not easily earned. It has to be earned. You know, it has to be earned. It's, it can't be given. And, you know, we're, we've taken huge strides and I, I think that we're in we're in a point of the race where we've definitely gotten a lot of people on our side, um, you know, with so many different experiences coming together for this one fight. So I'm I'm really proud of what we've done. Hey, what gives with AOC? What's happening with this Courage to Change endorsement? She hasn't come through yet, has she? You got like a no, few for uh, game time. What's happening? What's the holdup on her? To be honest, I'll be honest with you. Uh, people ask about it, and to be honest, like I I don't want it. I I don't want it just because. One, I understand politically how tough it is on her end because, you know, she hasn't really endorsed any other New York candidate uh, aside from Samuelis Lopez, who's running in New York 15. But that's an open seat. And I think that's, you know, it, it's plausible. It makes sense to be supporting her in that race. But it's difficult. You know, as a member of Congress, uh, she's only one member out of four of the squad. And just the members of the squad are just four members out of 435 members of Congress. So she already has a lot on her plate. And I don't really foresee her really taking that 
I can understand how it could be a risk for her because she would be supporting, if she was to support a candidate like myself, she'd be going against a fellow New York colleague of hers. You know, and there's already rift on that end. You know, and she's in a tough race this year too, you know, even though she does have a couple of challengers and uh, we know she probably will win, but she's not taking anything for granted. Uh, and so I don't really blame her for really not wanting to support our campaign. I totally understand that. And and I'm totally happy just because I want to create my own legacy. You know, is that I, I want to, Prove to the world, and just it's just not me. I'm, and I can say this on the behalf of our campaign is that we worked so hard to get to where we are today. Uh, you know, we've been doing this campaign for over a year. Just you know, we started early on with with zero dollars in the bank account, and now we're close to a hundred thousand dollars because we knew how tough and challenging it was going to be. And you know, even though we have a lot of great endorsers, we have the support of Nassau County DSA, we have the support of Brand New Congress, so many great supporters. But we really want to create our own story, our our own legacy. You know, and we could share that obviously with you know folks like AOC and Ilhan we could share that but we want to do it on our own terms and that's what we've been able to do and we want to continue to do that is that um, you know bringing in new people requires us to really build with them you know it's great to have help don't get me wrong like if she was to come out and say she would endorse us I would absolutely take the endorsement but our team has worked so hard to get to where we are that uh, we're just ready to prove to the world just like any underdog uh, prove to the world that you know we did it with our hard work yeah, I have to say, I think you have one of the most incredible stories of any candidate we've had on the show in terms of the arc that we've seen you go through. We've seen a lot of candidates kind of come up from a, a humble beginning and, and take off because of their messaging. But I can't think of anyone who really like had a complete just incredible turnaround from like really just hustling and struggling to like kind of get this off the ground, but really passionately believing in it to what we see now. It's amazing. And on that subject of like what we see now and and your legacy, so to speak, you've got a pretty cool event going on that we wanted to like mention a little bit. It's like a a, a text banking and comedy and there's going to be a yeah. DJ. Can you kind of get, can we get into this, this wild ass event that you're putting on? Because I think a lot of candidates have been doing stuff kind of like this, but yours is the, the, like the, the wildest one I've seen so far <laughs> in terms of content. You guys got to come to this. Uh, so Sanyan, Sanyan is a, is a group of LGBTQ South Asians and Indo-Caribbean um, artists. So dancers, musicians, comedians, you name it. And they actually held a fundraiser for us about a month ago. And it easily was the best fundraiser I've ever had. It was all over Zoom too. Like it was through Zoom. Um, so, you know, you could imagine how you could have fun, uh, you know, being in your own room with on your computer screen, but we were able to do it. And it felt like you were having fun in person. Uh, we had uh, great comedy, had great uh, music playing, we had singers. And then at the end of the event, we had a like a 30-minute dance session. There's a kick-ass DJ who will get on, and she was just playing amazing music, and everyone was just dancing. You know, And we raised a lot of money from that fundraiser, and it's definitely brought um, a lot of good people into our circles. So all while text-banking voters. Text-banking voters literally takes a, a few minutes at a time, and then we just respond to folks who uh, reply to our texts. So it's fun um, and also a good way to yeah, you know, get the votes that we need to win. Whose idea was that? Because I know y'all have had to be all very creative with the virus. <laughs> it's uh yeah, it's actually the lead person uh, from Sanyant. Her name is Divya. She she's uh been a great supporter of our campaign, and so you know she's been really leading the I I guess the 
for Sanyans to really have this um, phone banking and fundraiser last time. So, and that's what our campaign is about. You know, we're a group of like Rat Pack um, organizers who, again, are doing it everything on our terms. You know, we don't want to sound boring and bland. Like, you know, we want to be as creative as possible and do it, you know, the fun way. Like politics doesn't have to be boring. You started to say, we don't want to be bland and boring-like, and then you dropped off. I'm not going to ask you to finish that sentence. <laughs> but, um, yeah, we've been doing, like, a little bit of that, too. I think we did we did a phone bank for uh, Nabila Islam uh, last week, and uh, it was very chill. Kennedy, uh, I'm actually going to throw this one to you if you're here and available and ready. Can you sure. talk a little bit about what inspired us to do that and what that experience was like? Was it hard all those first phone banker questions. Yeah, let me just put this out there for those of you who might be listening and you're like, mm, that event sounds fun, but I don't know about text banking or phone banking. That kind of stuff's scary. Um, we did, we just did an event last week for Nabila Islam's campaign. And we had a number of guests come through, including Nabila, and talk about running for office and volunteering and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah. Like, I think a lot of people, you know, they're initially really afraid of like the rejection and stuff. I just want to say that for me personally, phone banking, door knocking, all that kind of stuff is about the most anxiety producing thing <laughs> that I can that I can do. And I and I, I do it as much as I can anyway. So I, I just want you to know if you're out there, you think, wow, this seems like it's going to be really unpleasant. It can be sometimes like there's aspects of it that are unpleasant. But the thing is, is those unpleasantries, they tend to be these brief interactions where like you're on the phone with somebody and they're like. I don't want to talk to you. And they hang up. Wow, that that's a, that's an ugly moment. But it's not the end of the world because it's over. On the other hand, when you have a positive conversation with somebody that makes all the difference in the world, you have you spend 10 minutes talking to somebody who's actually interested in what you have to say, that'll make your whole day. It'll it'll wash away all of the all of the bad that comes with like occasionally getting like someone angry on the phone or whatever. All that'll be gone the minute you have that one positive conversation. That's what I want to say about that. Kennedy's over there like this will completely fuck your life up. Talking to people is just terrible. <laughs> I hate it. They're awful. But let me tell you what though, this phone banking shit, it hit different. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of does though and i want to say this too and i i think sean yeah you might have some things to say about this sometimes it's easy to feel politically alone it's easy to feel like you have these ideas about making the world better but that most people don't really feel that way maybe you have a few people in your circle of friends that feel that way but your circle of friends is unusual is what you think in your mind you know uh, the reality is, is that a lot more people are interested in this stuff than you might realize i think your campaign kind of speaks to that and i think when you do phone banking when you do door knocking it's an opportunity to feel less alone politically because once you've knocked on a hundred doors in your neighborhood obviously we're not doing that right now because of coronavirus but i'm just using that as my example and like you realize that like 10 of your neighbors are also pretty far left you feel better about the world <laughs> like so question uh, for you, Kennedy, about this specifically. Are you telling me that instead of being on Tinder, I should be phone banking? Uh, literally. No, you should definitely be on. Whoa, you're talking about finding. Wait, no, you should be Tinder like banking. That's Tinder when you get on Tinder, you swipe <laughs> right, really and, then, and then you hit them with the, okay, now donate to Shania, um, and then we can maybe talk. I love this. <laughs> Uh, I feel like I feel like that's just regular old femdom. I don't know if that's <laughs> But anyway, Sean, do you have any thoughts on like sort of feeling politically alone? And I think running a campaign like yours, you, you can kind of speak to like the fact that maybe these things aren't as true as people kind of get in their heads. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, that's a great thing about phone banking. You know, door knocking is always great because you get to do it in person, but obviously we can't do that now. But with phone banking and text banking is even easier just because you don't have to really talk to someone over the phone. So if, you, if anyone does have anxiety, like you don't have to worry about talking directly to someone over the phone. But we've been able to find so many new people who are just like ready just to support us because they despise the current representatives. So, you know, we're seeing that we're not so isolated after all. And even after the whole Bloomberg situation happened, man, so many new voters who are coming out the woodworks from our, from our district, they're like, fuck yeah. And these are like leftists too. And there's this whole misconception with the, the establishment elite in our district that there's no such thing as socialists or leftists in our district. When that is not the case, a lot of the folks who live in the district are the original leftists. They came from like the Jim Crow South era um, and now they're older, but they have children who have these radical views and ideas, but they never really had any candidate or campaign really come forward the way we have and been able to bring them in to show that we, you know, we're in this fight together. So it sucks at first, you know, and again, it does suck. And I'm someone who has a lot of anxiety. So it's definitely uh, brought me down for a while in the beginning, but I'm someone who was always about just got to keep going at it you know got to keep going at it just because i'm a i'm an optimist and i always believe that we could overcome anything so we've seen a lot of people come out and now are joining the campaign you know volunteering and people are having a good time uh and it's just not through the you know volunteering aspect of phone banking and text banking but you're joining a team um which is like a community and that's another thing we're trying to really build upon is that this campaign, you know, regardless of what happens after June 23rd, and we will win after June 23rd, this is about building community. It's about building family, uh, doing things, uh, again, our way and doing things differently. That this is, it doesn't end after June 23rd. You know, we want folks to really use this campaign as a time to, you know, be a part of something bigger, to be a part of a family where they, you know, where they could share this, you know, similar beliefs and exercise the political tools to even do greater things, whether it's running for office or whether it's, uh, you know, wanting to do whatever you want, whatever you believe in, that this is a campaign that could be a support system for anybody. One of the things that I've liked about you as you've run your campaign is you have not been shy about telling people how you've been feeling, like the good times, the bad times. You have always been very transparent about like how it's been going for you. And um, I think that that kind of honesty, I mean, we have egomaniacs running the country right now. <laughs> and it's like it's time it's time for people who like are willing to keep it real with the folks. I mean, around. have we ever not had egomaniacs running the country? I mean, Jimmy Carter uh, had, well, I guess we all have our own spots of ego. So I don't know if anybody can really say that they don't have any ego. When does your ego become egomania, I guess, is for medical professionals to decide. We we have not played Madden with you, so I don't know how you think <laughs> it gets. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's just definitely a very good thing. And um, we definitely want you to say hi to your dad. We need to get you and your dad on in in the future. That'll be rad. Well, we we'll, we we'll do that when you're on when you're in D.C. That'll be like our celebration episode. It'll be rad. So, uh, what can people actually do? They're pumped up. They're motivated. They they know what they need to do. And this is a race that is gonna get close. It's close and it's getting closer. What can people do to help you through that home stretch uh, in terms of volunteering, phone banking, text banking, all that noise? What do they need to do to plug in? 
Yeah, I mean, first things first, uh, if you're not following the campaign already, go follow us on Instagram and Twitter at ShanYat2020. And we are 35 days out until the primary day. 35 days, so we don't have a lot of time left. We need all hands on deck. And if anyone could spare at least one or two hours of their time a day or even a week, we need people to hit the phones. Uh, it's the only way we can reach out to voters. And we have plenty of people doing it every day. So the more people we have, the more voters we're able to reach out. And the greater probability of us winning are high. So you can email us at info at sean2020.com. That way you could email us uh, and then we can reply right away. And, you know, we'll get you right on board. And then also, if folks can contribute, you know, it does cost money to, you know, get these voter acquisition data um, stuff happen. Every dollar counts if you have the financial capabilities to do so during this time. That'd be great. You can uh, visit our website at sean2020.com and contribute uh, right there. Sean, yeah, thank you so much for coming back. This has been a blast to check in with you, to hear about how things are going. It's always so great to talk to you because... You really, you really speak your mind. You're not afraid to say how you feel about things. And I think that's why your campaign has done so well, to be honest. I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. Absolutely. And for those of you listening, thank you so much for listening. As always, we appreciate you so much. If you don't follow us on Twitter, we're at NSFWonks. And uh, we're always doing fun stuff over there. Uh, we're even, we have a new streaming thing that we've been doing we're trying to do like every weekday uh and that's on every streaming platform including twitter so if you follow us over there you know you can grab see us on periscope shooting the shit about the news working on the show doing that kind of stuff and uh yeah we hope to hang out with you on the internet sometime and until then we hope that you enjoyed this episode and that you'll join us for the next one i've been kennedy cooper brandon buchanan i'm rachel khan please send your attractive cousins my way <laughs> uh, Rachel will be actively tender banking, so just get on tender. You'll <laughs> be fine. Um, and once again, our guest was Shania Chowdhury. Sean, thank you one more time. Thank you again, guys. I appreciate this. It's always a good time. Looking forward to the uh, the victory episode. Absolutely great to hear from you or meet you, as the case is for me. Uh, and yeah, we'll celebrate. All, All right. right. Bye-bye.